Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Hilary Scarlett has worked in the field of organisational change for many, many years. But in 2009, she came across an article about neuroscience and how this relatively new science might help organisations better help their people through change. Here finally was an evidence-based approach to how we manage organisational change. Hillary went on to work with neuroscientists in the UK and in the US. She wrote a book, Neuroscience for Organisational Change, in which she writes, I passionately believe that if organisations, leaders, all of us can understand a little bit more about how our brains work, then we can work with the brain, not despite it. This passion, I think, is clear in the conversation that you're about to hear. Hilary explains what's actually happening inside our brains when change is announced and that change process begins. And we address, through that lens of neuroscience, a number of perennial IC issues, like when and how to communicate difficult news, the role of leaders during change. But we also address more personal concerns, like the difference between having a fixed and a growth mindset, why most neuroscientists practice mindfulness, and what's actually happening inside our brains when we get that little high from ticking something off our to-do lists. Listeners, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hilary, it is an absolute honour to have you on the Internal Comms podcast. I've got to keep myself in check because I'm so excited by this subject. But I thought to start us off, it might be useful with a definition. What is neuroscience? What is it? Good question. Um, put at its simplest, it's, it's a study of the nervous system, including the brain. So the neuroscience I work with, they're using all sorts of technology to look at um, brain scans or hormonal levels or EEG, those kind of things in, in the brain. So it's basically a study of the brain and the nervous system and going taking it right back to that, that level. And it's still a fairly new science, would you say? It is, it is. Yes, it is pretty new. I think that's one of the reasons we're hearing so much about it now, because it is quite new. And the reason for it being quite new is is technology is what's really moving on our knowledge of the brain. So now there are far more things like fMRI scanners, so scanners that, that can look at the brain, look at where oxygenated blood goes in the brain. And that's the part of the brain that we are using when we're thinking about something or doing something. So what that really means is that um, neuroscientists can now work with, with the likes of us, people with healthy brains and study our brains. There's now portable technology, so they begin to look at what people can do in the workspace too, what's going on. And that's the real shift because up until the arrival of this technology, all we could do in terms of learning about the brain was really look at people with um, brain damage who'd either been born with some kind of brain damage or acquired brain damage during their lives and then see what abilities or faculties they lost. So that's the real shift now is being able to look at the healthy brain. Wow. Do you think we'll move to an era where 
we're all looking at our brains? Will the, will the imaging become that powerful and that mainstream that we could be, we could be actually, right, you know, have our sort of tracker on our wrist that tells us that, not just how we're functioning bodily, but our brains as well? I mean, I guess it's moving more that, more, more that way. I mean, I think technology that still, yes, in some ways it's still hugely limited because fMRI scans are still great big machines right. that, that people are in. And, um, and also it's not a very natural environment lying inside a great big no. machine, having your brain scanned while you're doing a certain task. But certainly, it's, it's, it's trying to move more that way in terms of giving people more regular feedback. And yeah, yeah, amazing, yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, what sparked your interest in neuroscience? Because looking at your CV, you've had a long career in communications, yes. and particularly internal communications. Yeah. And I'm wondering, how did that develop? Was it a sudden spark, or was it a gradual progression? Yeah, no, good question. I, yes, as you say, my background is very much in internal communications and change management, and worked in that area for many years, and. Part of my frustration, I guess, was that I used to um, work a lot, a lot of uh, mergers and, and strategies and those kind of things, but it was all kind of trailing behind the strategy consultants and was always very frustrated as to why was it that those of us who work in Intel communications were always called in very late in the day. We've got ah. this big change program. Oh, and by the way, we need to take employees with us. So... Um, don't know why it is, but lots of reasons perhaps, perhaps why. But so I became quite interested about what's, can we bring more you know, science or research to what we do? And initially, I went off and did some studies in psychology and there stumbled across an article written by a psychiatrist saying we um, can now understand enough about the human brain to bring it to the world of work and, and to, to the real world, so to speak. And I thought that's interesting. Maybe we can bring a bit more science to what's going on in the organisation. That would be really useful. So that's what triggered my interest. And originally, I went off and studied um, kind of virtually with neuroscientists in the States. Um, over the last four or five years, have worked um, on and off with neuroscientists at University College London here in the UK, who have been great, I have to say, in terms of sharing their knowledge. And I kind of see my role is taking their work out of the lab, make it really practical for leaders, managers, employees in, in organisations. And I guess the very first session I did was after the banking crisis. And I was brought in by one of the banks and was asked to work with the leaders of the bad bank, in inverted commas, the <laughs> bit they were going to close down or hive off um, after the banking crisis. And the head of communications and head of HR brought me in and said, could you work with the leaders? They're all going to be out of a job in 18 months' time, and they know that but we need to keep people performing despite that. But they said, don't talk about employee engagement, don't talk about communication, you know, the bankers, that's, that's not their language. So I said, okay, well, I will come in and talk about the brain and, and what helps it perform, what helps it focus, what helps it have a good day or a bad day. And that's what I did. And the bankers absolutely loved it because wow. it was bringing science into, um, into the sessions. And in many ways, the things we were talking about or the things I was advocating were probably not that different from things that we would all advocate as internal communication professionals. But because it had that language of science behind it, because it had the evidence, because it had the brain scans, because it wasn't a matter of opinion, this is what we now know about the brain and what helps it to, to function. They really loved it, I think, because it kind of brought science, it brought evidence, it took away that what's a matter of opinion. Um, and, and they yeah, really, I think, sat up and paid attention mm. in, in a way that I hadn't seen before. So that's what I thought yeah, this this is useful, not 
just the knowledge, but also just the language of science is really useful, I think, to all of us who work in communications. We can be accused occasionally of being fluffy. And I think you're right. And it's lots of reasons for that. And it's often not warranted. But I think reading your book, there were so many moments where I went, aha, that's why that happens. You know it happens, but now we know why. It's the way people's brains are responding to the messages that they're receiving and how they're feeling. Incredible, incredible. Yeah, and I think, and you're absolutely right. I think that's really useful because I think for a lot of it, it gives that kind of explanation to why that thing is going, why we've responded in a certain way. And I know leaders have certainly said to me when I've run sessions with them, now that I know why, I'm much more likely to stick to doing whatever it is I need to do because I know if I do X or Y or I don't listen to people or I don't talk to people, you know, I know what that's going to do to their brain in terms of performance. So I think it helps the, the, yeah, the, the, the good behaviours to stick in that way. And I think the other part about it, as you say, I think, I know when I was doing my original neuroscience studies, it is that sense of, oh, I felt that way, oh, that's happened to me. And I think there's something really reassuring about it's not just me. That's how our brains are set up. They are brilliant things, but they respond in certain ways to certain things. They have certain limitations. And I just think it's incredibly useful to have that knowledge and work with that knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than in ignorance of it, yeah. So let's share some of that knowledge with with the listeners now. So one of the things very early on in your book you say is that our brains are hopeless prediction machines. That phrase really sort of resonated with me, but I wonder if you can explain what you mean by that and how this might influence the way we respond as individuals to change. Yeah. I think one thing that's very, really useful, again, I found very useful, that this, this idea that in a way our brains have not changed that much since we were out on the savannah. And although we might be working in a very sophisticated workspace, actually our brains, it's almost as if, as if they think they are still out on the savannah. And I think that's a really useful thought to keep in our heads. So out on the savannah, it would be incredibly helpful for our brains to be able to predict what might be coming up. So if there's a rustle in the undergrowth and our brains can predict that might be a snake, our brains are in a better place to protect us. And it's all about survival. That's the key drive for our brains. So our brains have have, have evolved to be able to, to want to predict what's coming up to better protect us. And the same is true now, mm. that our brains want to predict, they want to know what's coming up subconsciously, always trying to make sense of things, make meaning. And I think, again, it's a really useful thing to be aware of in the organisation, not least when we're going through change, because what does change mean for most people? I don't know what's coming up, I can't predict. Our brains, on the whole, do not like that. They kind of crave certainty, mm. because they feel they've got that they can protect us so I think again it's one of those areas where if we know that and if people are finding change hard I think we have to be empathetic because our brains don't like uncertainty Mm. they want to be able to predict they want to make meaning Mm, mm. and we're driven to make that meaning but you also say in the book actually we are it is better to tell us a sort of an uncomfortable truth very early on than put us in limbo and have us waiting to find out what might be happening so actually 
give bad news up front, and that's much that's much a, be- a better thing to do than people can start to plan. Can you can deal with it. Yeah, there's, there's lots of research from the world of neuroscience and psychology about um, yeah, it, it's the not knowing, it's being in limbo that that's, that's so difficult. And one of the extreme examples of that um, is um, children who've got a parent who's got Huntington's disease, which is a really nasty neurological disease. Um, if you get it, um, your life will be shortened. Um, and when you're in your 30s and should be in your prime, physically, mentally, you'll be declining. Nothing stops it at the moment. Nothing alleviates it. So if and if you've got a parent with Huntington's disease, you've got a 50% chance you've got the gene. And research was done amongst children. They were probably about 18, 19, 20, that kind of age group. And those children who took the test and proved positive, they will develop Huntington's disease, after the initial shock, were happier than the children who chose not, not to take the test. And the thinking being that even when you've got news as devastating as that, once you've got that news, you can kind of take back control you can begin to plan mm. okay I've got 10 good years left in my life what will I do with that what's on my bucket list mm. so to speak whereas the children who choose not to take the test I don't know I might have 10 good years I might have 60 good years I don't know so that's an extreme example but um, uh, there are lots of others about once we've got that knowledge we can kind of get on and make the plan and in a sense, the bankers I referred to it earlier in the, in the bad bank, who all knew they were going to be out of a job, they performed incredibly well. And they said, because we know. We yes. know we're going to be out of a job. We know we need to get on and think about our CVs and think about what skills we have and, and where we go from. We know we can get, mm. now get on and make a plan, as opposed to perhaps the people back in the main bank who think they've got a job, but banking was pretty precarious right then. Mm. So I think there are lots of examples that once we've got that bad news, on the whole, after the initial shock, we, we can kind of take a back control and yeah. plan. You, you say employees are more supportive of change when they're allowed to come to their own conclusions in their own time. So people need to have their own moments of insight. Mm. And I thought, wow, how interesting is that? Because how many times have I sat in a room? I've either been the leader or I've been with a leader. And you said, right, now I've told them. Why aren't they getting with the programme? <laughs> Yes. They're not getting in the program because they need to assimilate that yes. assimilate that information. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, as you're right, so many change programs I've seen it. it these will go into darkened rooms with strategy consultants emerge with a plan that might be brilliant, but actually they go into broadcast mode. And as you say, wonder why employees sit and go. Oh don't want to do it, dig my heels in. And yet all the research from neuroscience shows how incredibly powerful it is to give people a chance to reach their own insights, to reach their own conclusions. Partly because choice is hugely important to the human brain. And if I feel I've kind of chosen it, so to speak, I'm likely to be much more committed to it than if I've been told by a leader, this is the right course of action this is good for stakeholders, this is what you're going to do. And I think it's part of the reason also why things like coaching are coming much more to the fore in many organisations. Because Coaching, again, is all about enabling people to reach their own insights, set their own goals, reach their own conclusions. And that makes a big difference to our brains to the extent that we actually process goals that we have chosen, we process in a different part of the brain from goals that we have been given wow. by other people. So they're that different to us. It kind of, it's my goal, it's mine, I've chosen it, I'll do it, I'm committed to it. So it feels very different to the brain as opposed to something I am told to go away and do. But that's mass, that has massive implications for even performance reviews. Yes. Because enabling people to say, no, I'm going to ask you what 
objectives you want to set for yourself. Yes. Well, they'll be more powerful. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And and I know performance management is a, is a thorny area, but absolutely, I think the more, again, the more control you can give to employees, perhaps about where they have the appraisal, when they have it, again, giving them a bit of a control. But absolutely, if you can get employees who seek feedback when they're ready for it, you know, that they can ask the questions, they can set their own goals, it makes a big, a big difference to them. If I feel I set that goal, it's mine, I'm going to go for it, as opposed to say it's something I've just been told to do, mm. um, which, yeah, which I'm not so keen on. Yeah, You make a point, and, I, and I, I think we have to bring it out because I've seen it happen so many times and I'm sure listeners will be nodding along. Before the big announcement, employees see leaders in darkened rooms, maybe they go on off-site away days, but they're locked in a room. They might make an announcement and then they go away again to have more strategic yeah. meetings in more kind of um, behind closed doors. Yeah. And your book makes it clear that that is not good for the employees to see leaders disappearing before or after an event. Can you sort of dig into that a little bit and explain why? Yes, and, and, and I think, and, and I've absolutely seen that happen. And I think, um, and partly talking to leaders after that, they'll say, I think for them, again, it's the fear of not having the answer that there is uncertainty now in the organisation. So partly it's they're busy, partly it's that fear of I haven't got the answer for them, so I'd rather not 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 be questioned on it on it right now. Um, but from an employee's point of view, this is the very point at which you want to see your leaders um, for all sorts of reasons. Partly, again, I think as we all know, if if we haven't got answers, if there is uncertainty in the organisation, um, we will gossip and speculate about what 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 all this means. And um, and again, that's again the, the brain's kind of craving for certainty prediction. We'll create our own if the organisation yes. doesn't give us the information. We'll create our own. On the whole, because our brains are more interested in in threats in many ways, because they're more important in terms of survival, our speculation and gossip tends to be negative. It's yes. never about how old it's all going to be around. It's also about, oh, what does this mean in terms of jobs going or whatever? So we tend to speculate negatively. Also, um, I think one of the areas that comes out really strongly from the world of neuroscience is that we are deeply, deeply social creatures and our need for social connection and belonging, I think, are stronger than probably many of us have, have realised. So that's the very point at which you, you feel you want to be connected to other people. You want to see that leader. And um, I think it's really important, even if you can't give people certainty right now, you can at least give them that sense of, I'm still on your side, I'm still your leader, I'm still your manager, you still belong to the team. Mm. And that becomes really important. Again, an example, going back to the banking crisis, again, an example of, of uh, two banks I knew of, and their chief execs responded in very different ways. That one... I guess there was so much uncertainty and turmoil during that banking crisis. But one chief is set, so I'll just get out there and have town hall meetings or meetings and kind of talk to the to the employees, to people about what we think might happen, what we can do. By contrast, in another bank, um, the chief is set just kind of disappeared and didn't want to say anything because he feared that whatever he said would get into the media. Things were changing so quickly. What he said might be proved wrong the very next day or mm. next week. So he preferred just to say nothing. And talking to the two communication teams, what a difference it made. That chief exec that was getting out there in amongst the people, mm. kind of saying, I don't know either, but let's talk about what we can do or what we do know or don't know. People really responded much better to that than to the chief exec that just kind of just disappeared. And, and people felt not only in a huge amount of t- 
turmoil, but also kind of abandoned by their leader at that point. Yes, yes. I mean, your your book has a whole section on the communicate now or later dilemma. Yeah, and it? it is a dilemma, and it, and I and I and there is no perfect answer to that because if you go early, you might be wrong. You might need to retract, and I, and that's not perfect. So there is no perfect solution, unfortunately. But on the whole, from a neuroscience point of view, yeah, the tendency would communicate earlier because if you don't, people speculate, people gossip, and they will waste a huge amount of energy doing that, actually. Mm, so mm. it's actually not good for performance either. You also said something, that the, that initial communication is really important. Whatever is said up front, for some reason, might linger for longer. It's, it's interesting because we've had other people on this podcast who have mentioned how leaders have stood up, made some in, inappropriate joke, mm. particularly inappropriate given the sad circumstances they find themselves in. And that's lingered in people's memory and, and cast a shadow over everything else, even if they've retracted it. I just wonder why that initial communication sticks with us so much. Yes, and I guess especially that, in, that, in that moment of the first announcement, if there is change in the organisation, then we are kind of hanging on to every word to try and get that certainty. Again, it goes back to that point about trying to predict, have certainty. So every word kind of resonates and matters to us. So as you say, that, that flippant comment, people won't forget that because it becomes really important. And especially um, when change is announced, it does create what's called this, this threat state in our, in our brains. So we're much more sensitive to negative messages too. We t- tend to see more negative things. We tend to hear more negative things. So crafting those messages and getting them absolutely right in the right balance is, is really important because we're kind of, yeah, we're, we're listening, but also we're listening in this quite strong almost filter of threats. We tend to hear the negatives. And as you say, they will stay with us and they will resonate. We won't let them go. Mm. And because our brains are kind of hunting for things that I need to be aware of that, that will might threaten me or how do I protect myself? What was fascinating was that you explain what actually happens to our brains and our bodies when we're in that threatened mm. state. And I think at one stage you even say, you know, our vision narrows. Yes. Um, and I was thinking, this is so interesting because you call people into a room, they think they're going to hear bad news, and already n- their brains are not working and functioning as well as they might do if they're in a more happier state. It's fascinating. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And I, I think most of us are probably a bit of this threat state most days because um, what again what we're designed to do we're designed to be out in the savannah so as human beings we're designed to have that spike of the stress hormones to help us run away from the bear or fight that tribe but then they're meant to go away and the problem for all of us in the 21st century workplace is we've all constantly got these high levels of stress hormones and we're not designed physically mentally to deal with that and when we're in this stressed place this threat state it's almost like we are looking at the world of work through a filter of threat so we tend to see um, threats that are there as being bigger than they really are or we tend to see threats where they don't even exist so these little things like um, it might be you know you walk into the office in the morning and you know you see some people in a meeting but you've not been invited suddenly this becomes much more significant to us or it's the little things of normally my boss normally she says hello to me in the morning today she didn't catch my eye what does that mean so we start over interpreting and and say it's almost through this kind of filter of threat so we need to be really aware of that in ourselves am I doing that Mm. Am I slightly overreacting to things? But also be very aware of it in people in the organisation and and be kind to them, I think. Be kind to them, be kind to ourselves. 
And in particular, I think what's very important, um, especially as so many of us um, work in geographically dispersed organisations, we tend to be much um, more forgiving and kinder to ourselves and to the people we see frequently. So if I'm a bit stressed and anxious and being a bit short with people, the voice in my head will say, I'm a good person, but I'm having a bad day right now. So that's why I'm perhaps being a bit short with people. And I'll be as forgiving with people who I see frequently. But if it's somebody who's based in another office who I don't see so much and they're a bit short, our brain tends to go, well, they're not very nice, are they? Mm. We are much less forgiving to people we don't see so much. So I think... There's a mantra we all need to keep in our heads during times like that. Is there a good person that's just having a bad day right now and kind of be a bit more forgiving to to others around us as well? But it also, it comes back to that point I've heard so many times from interviewees about the importance of at least some face-to-face communication. Ab- no, absolutely, yes. And I think... No, face-to-face still really matters to us. It is it is really important. And there is interesting research, too, about the more, on the whole, the more we see certain faces, um, the more we tend to like that person. Wow. In fact, there's even been research done amongst um, newsreaders that the more we see a certain newsreader's face, the more we tend to like that 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 news that newsreader. So, so familiar. And again, it goes back to our savannah brains because if you think about savannah, our tribe was the people we saw frequently. So those are the people I know. Those are the people I trust. If this is a face of something I don't see so much, they're probably from another tribe, so yes. it could be a threat to me. Yes. So it, it kind of, again, so much I think is explained by that, going back to that, that, our, our savannah brain. So, yeah, familiarity is really important and that chance to be heard. Um, and also this fact that people respond to change so differently, um, that we are, and, and from a neuroscience perspective, um, Again, what a lot of us are doing, what we're doing subconsciously is in any given situation thinking, have I been in a situation like this before? Was it okay? Was it not okay? So if I've been through change before and I sailed through it and I got the job I wanted, then on the whole, my brain will be saying to me subconsciously, change is coming again, but you're okay with that. You do all right with that. If I've been through change in the past and it was painful and difficult, and I talked to one one, um, client and she'd been through change um, a few years previously, got the job she wanted, and then change was suddenly announced again in the organisation. But the process she'd had to go through Mm. to get that job had been so painful that as change was announced again in the organisation, all those emotions came flooding mm. back. Mm. Oh, here it goes again. And I, and I don't like it. And so again, our brains will kind of colour how we see change. If I've been through it before in the past, on the whole, I'll probably tend to be more positive about change. If I've been through change in the past, it was painful, it was difficult. On the whole, my brain will be saying, watch out. Mm. You don't like this, so to speak. So we all will respond differently to change on given past experience, our expectations, personal circumstances. And again, I think that's where face-to-face is so important and where managers are so important because they can pick up on how it, each individual is responding to those changes and they may, might be reacting quite differently. But a manager can pick that up in a way that a leader ca- cannot. So face-to-face managers are so important in, mm. in, in that time. Mm. It does explain why so often I've walked into a, a focus group or a workshop, they're about to go through change, a group of people, but 
for the exactly the reason you explain, they're talking about something that happened five years ago. Mm. And it sparked that memory of how yes. it was. And as you say, it's colouring everything. And as I was reading your book, I was thinking, we've got to look backwards as well as forward when we're planning a change programme. How have these people been through change and what's their experience of it? Before we start planning the future, we've got to look back to the past. It's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're, you're absolutely right. The, to be aware of that, what have they And if change has been very difficult or painful in the past, to be ready for that because they're going to react negatively again this, this time around and completely understandably. Mm. So to be ready for that. And I think, you know, as you say, I think absolutely being aware of what have people gone through for, so how will they see change um, and therefore how might they might respond is really important. And and also I think sometimes enabling people to let go of the past too. I remember again working on a change programme and um, there'd be lots of redundancies, but two people had not been made redundant, but they had been moved to a new office and weren't settling in well. And the manager said to me, I don't get it. They've been the fortunate ones. They've kept their jobs well. Lots of other people have lost their jobs. You know, why aren't they happier? But talking to the two people who'd been moved to the new office, they'd been through a really painful experience. They'd lost their colleagues they had worked with for 10, 15, 20 years. And hadn't had a chance to deal with that or talk about it. And they just need to kind of to, to deal with it, get that off their chest, so to speak, to enable them to to move on. They were still looking back, I guess, in terms mm. of the change curve, rather than having ability to look forward. So again, face-to-face, just allowing people to talk, feel heard makes a big difference to us in terms of that ability to move on in terms of change. Because did I, did I read this right, that you said talking about a, a negative emotion, an un- unhappy emotion, just talking about it can lessen the feeling of it? Is that, is that Yeah, right? absolutely. And there's work done by all sorts of neuroscience, but one of them is, is, is Matthew Lieberman, who's, who's a great neuroscientist. And yeah, he did some research where he was getting people to, to what they, they call label negative emotions. So just speak the emotion. I'm really worried. I'm really angry whatever it might be. And they found that just that ability to say it, to speak it out or to write it, but this is actually about speaking the emotion, actually reduces that negative emotion, both in terms of the feeling, but also a neural level, because the activity is diminished. So I think, again, for many of us, when we're going through change, is that dilemma about, do I let people talk about how they're feeling? Or is it better just to kind of sweep it under the carpet and, and carry on? So again, from a neuroscience point of view, let people say how they feel because that very fact of, of labelling it actually reduces the emotion. Not that you want people to wallow in the negative emotion for, for days or weeks or months, but the act, act of expressing it is a really helpful thing to do. Mm, it's really yeah. powerful. Mm. There's a fantastic line in a film, and I'm listeners, please let me know But um, what it is. But there's, a, I think it's a male actor who says, I was very angry about my childhood. It's taken me 20 years of therapy to say... I was very angry about my childhood. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> but yes. it's, it's that feeling of it, you can let it go once yes. you can actually express yes. it out loud. Yes. Yeah. Amazingly powerful. Can we talk a little bit about dopamine? Because right. I'm yes. fascinated yes. because sort of we've been talking about fear and threat, mm. but the other side of the coin, how you engage, how you motivate and how you reward people, mm. what role does dopamine play in that? What is it? Yes, I mean, dopamine is a, is a chemical that does a neurotransmitter that does all sorts of things in the brain, one of the things it's associated with is, is reward and indeed anticipation of reward. I think if people are, are struggling during change, finding things that are rewarding to the brain are a really useful thing to do. So 
part of the beauty of neuroscience, I think, is that lots of little things can trigger dopamine or the, or the reward system in our brains. So examples might be um, if someone's struggling right now, setting someone a short-term goal that they can achieve because achieving a goal feels rewarding to the brain, puts our brain into a more positive place. So not only feels good in the moment, tick, I've done that, I've achieved that, so I feel good about myself, but also kind of sets the brain up for the next day to take on perhaps more challenging tasks. So there are lots of little things that we can do that to, to activate this reward response in, 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 the, in the brain. And the little things do that. So yeah, I think setting us short, short-term goals or things like if we're having a tough day at work, um, remembering a time when I did something really well, something I feel good about. Mm. So I often say to managers, leaders, if you've got, if you're having a tough time, get them to talk about a time when they did something well, they achieved something, they're proud about that moment. Because talking about that moment is rewarding to the brain. It's almost for the brain as if it's reliving that moment again. So a really useful thing to do if you're having a tough time, struggling with the uncertainty and change that's going on, these little things that we can do to put the brain back into a more uh, yeah, rewarding place. So that's why I get a little kick just by crossing something off a to-do list. Exactly. I do the same. I do the same. I have my list in the morning and tick them off. Absolutely. I mean, we've been talking a lot about how we can help organisations through change simply by understanding how our brains are working. But I'm interested also in on a personal level, can we improve the way our brains work? And you talk in the book about mindsets yeah. and this growth mindset. Yes. And I've yeah. read a lot about this. And But I was hoping you could really explain what is a growth mindset and can I work out whether I've got one or not? And if I haven't got one, can I develop one? Carol Dweck, who's professor of psychology at Stanford University, she has done decades of research into this this very simple concept in a way about growth and fixed mindset. And a growth mindset is a belief that I'm born with a certain amount of talent or ability but I can get better through effort and applying myself and working at things. A fixed mindset is a belief that I'm born with a certain amount of talent. I'm either good at maths or I'm not. I'm either good at art or I'm not. And that's kind of it. There's not much I can I can, I can do about it. I'm either good at this thing or I'm not. And those two mindsets become self-fulfilling. Right. That that's and and Carol and in particular, I think every school I think in this country now is teaching about growth and fixed mindsets because they realize it makes such a difference to children. If you've got a growth mindset, you might not be the best at maths, but keep on working at it and you will get better. And children do get better. And there are all sorts of implications. So if we've got a growth mindset, um, we're much more likely to um not have a problem if we get something wrong, if we make a mistake, that we kind of say, okay, I made a mistake. That's interesting. <laughs> what can I learn from that? Mm-hmm. People with a fixed mindset, if they make a mistake, they go, oh, I'm just not very good at this. I don't want to do this again. I'm not. I'm just no good. I'm no good. And there's work that Carol Dweck has done with um, neuroscientists where they've got people into the lab, somehow try with a fixed or growth mindset, given them puzzles to do. And then if people get them wrong, they say, no, you got that wrong and, and here's the right answer. In somebody with a fixed mindset when told, no, you got that wrong and here's the right answer, kind of one of two things, either go into a threat state, oh, I got that wrong, how stupid, how stupid, or almost nothing going on in the brain. <laughs> I'm, just like, I'm just not engaging with this. I'm, you know, I'm just almost like brain dead. 
People with a growth mindset told, no, you got something wrong, and here's the right answer. Kind of their brains are quite active. They're kind of engaging with it. The really interesting bit of the experiment is at the end, they asked both groups the questions they got wrong, they asked them again. And someone with a growth mindset a second time around is much more likely to get the answer wow. right because they engaged with it. They didn't mind getting something wrong. They were learning from it. So I think that's a great example of yeah, the, the difference it can make. And to go back to your question about can we change it? Absolutely. The, the brilliant news about growth and fixed mindset is we can change them just by knowing about them is a great starting point. We've all got growth and fixed mindsets about something. So right. again, we shouldn't okay. beat ourselves up that, you know, I might have a growth mindset about one thing, but a fixed mindset about another thing. And when I was reading Carol Dweck's book, she's written a great book called Mindset, and she has TED Talks and all sorts. And I can remember reading her book, and um, you know, as an eight-year-old, I did grade one piano, scraped through, told myself, I'm not musical, had two big sisters who were much more musical than me. I gave up, I stopped. I'm not musical, they are. How I regret that now, because mm. that was fixed mindset from me, age eight. Oh, I'm no good. So one of my plans is to go back and have piano lessons. <laughs> but that's an example and where someone says, okay, you're not going to be the best, but keep on practicing and you will mm. get better. And there is this, yeah, there's a thing called neuroplasticity, there's this ability of the brain to learn and to keep on learning and um, is really important actually. And because not only can we learn new things well into old age, but actually neuroscientists now think it's really good for us to keep on learning. They say, if you want to keep your brain sharp, keep on learning difficult things. Get out there and challenge your brain. Because I think one of the reasons perhaps why our brains slow down in old age is we don't quite challenge or stretch them right. in the same way right. as when we were younger. Yes. It is, at the end of the day, a muscle, I guess. Yes. So yeah. do some gym work for the mind might be not a bad idea. Uh, no, absolutely. So they say every day, get that, you know, learn something difficult. And there might, you know, there might also be a message within change that if change does, one of the reasons we find change difficult is because often it means we have got to learn new ways of doing things and drop old ways of doing things. So there might be a message, well, if you're finding learning a new way of something difficult, well, good, because that's challenging your brain, it's stretching your brain that might be cognitively protective mm. um, in, in, in later life. So, so learn something new. But the, bringing two things together there really makes me think because <laughs> if your attitude to failure is, oh, how interesting. I wonder why I got that wrong. I wonder if I could do it differently the yeah. next time. Your brain is going to adapt and you're going to open your mind up. Mm. If your response to getting something wrong is this threatening, yes. then immediately you're going back to what you said before. Exactly. You've got that myopic view of the world. Yeah you're not thinking clearly, as clearly as you would otherwise. So yeah. your attitude to, to, to failure or just merely making a small error is key, I guess. Yes. No, ab no absolutely. And, uh, no, absolutely, as you say, because I think if you make a mistake or something's challenging, a fixed mindset, yeah, that's a threat to me and, and it's a stressful response and the brain goes into a negative place. If you have a growth mindset, it's a challenge. How can I learn? What can I do differently? And so we can do that. And I think, again, in organisations, it's so important. We and create, create a climate of learning mm. that if someone makes um, a huge number of mistakes we don't come down like a ton of bricks as long as it's not catastrophic mm. and as long as they're not repeating the mistake over and over but that whole point about okay we made a mistake there or we didn't get that quite right but what can I learn from that and I think sports um, people are great examples of growth mindset I think that you know David Beckham I think famously said I wasn't the most talented footballer but I practiced and I practiced and I practiced and I think 
tennis players are great examples of that on the whole, that mm. whether they win or lose a match, they will look back at it. How can I slightly improve mm. my forehand? Mm. How can I slightly get this bit better or whatever it might be? So I think that's a great example of constantly learning, constantly trying to improve, and that we can do it. Mm. Um, and so I, and I think for organisations, that's one of the big challenges. How do we create a culture where... It's okay to make mistakes so long as we're learning and, and, and improving because you need to do that. Now, I guess you need leaders and managers who are prepared to talk about the mistakes they've made but what they've learned from it. And I know it's hard, it's tough, especially if you're a leader, talk mm. about a mistake that you've made. Mm. But I think we need to create cultures where we can do that. And um, I guess famously within sectors, the aviation sector is the, is the one that's famous for having done that. Yes. For realising if pilots are all making the same mistake, maybe there's something wrong with the way we're doing things. So mm. encouraging pilots to share mistakes. I got mm. this wrong, I got that wrong, because if there's a pattern there, mm. maybe it's something we can do. Mm. So mm. I think aviation is a great example mm. to us all about yeah, an industry where it's okay to talk about mistakes mm. I've made. It's encouraged, isn't it? I yeah. mean, I think black box thinking in particular. Yes. Is it Matthew Side? It, it is. Yes. It is right. It Who is. makes the contrast between the aviation sector and the NHS. Yes. Uh, or, or the medical profession in general. Yeah. It says in aviation, everyone wants to know, why did that mistake happen? Mm. How can we stop it from mm. happening? And mm. they want to talk about it. They want to be all over it. They want to share that learning yeah. with the rest yeah. of the aviation yeah. sector. With the medical profession, everyone's like, we did our best. Yes. Enough. That's it. And they're worried about being sued or whatever. Yeah. yeah and actually, I've, I've, got a, I've got a pilot's license. I have, and so I, have a, wow. I have my own personal experience. Very early on when I learned to fly, very early on, it was before the days of GPS in planes. And um, I was flying back to the airfield and I got lost. But you absolutely have it instilled in you. If you get lost, call in. Call in straight away. And so I thought, well, I better call in. I'm completely lost. I couldn't see Gatwick Airport ahead of me. Well, time to call in. So I called and said, I'm lost. Uncertain position, cross position, fixed, whatever. And they are lovely. They go, well done you. Thank you so much for calling. How can we help? Where do you want to go? And they are wow. just, they make you feel so, are you feeling quite stupid? But they make you feel okay about it. Well done you. You made the right decision. How can we help you back? And they are absolutely lovely because that's what they want you to do. They want you to say, I've made a mistake. Help. Best do that than, than, than before it becomes a catastrophe. So, and as somebody quite rightly said to me, if only more organisations were like that to employees, you've mm. made a mistake. Well done. How can we help? How can we get you mm. back on track? So, mm. so I always remember that personal story. They, you know, the world of aviation is absolutely like that. Mm. You make a mistake, it's like, you know, as long as you report early and, and do mm. the sensible thing, mm. then they're incredibly supportive. And it is powerful when a leader gets up and does it first. I remember yeah. meeting someone from the Red Arrows who said, as the, as the sort of the leader of the pack when we're out, when we come back and we analyse in minute detail the, the sort of the various kind of trans uh, formations mm. that we were going through. I have to be the first person to say, look, I I was out slightly then. It was I didn't do that quite right because that encourages everyone yeah. else in the crew to come forward and say a similar thing. But he does it first. Yeah, yeah absolutely, because it's kind of setting the tone. He's admitted he's made, made a mistake. He's not perfect, so it's okay for me too. And also the very fact he's doing that is kind of saying, I trust you. I can share this with you. I've made a mistake. You're not going to use it against me in some way, way later. I, so I trust you as a team. So absolutely, I, I say to, to, to Lisa Manager, if you can share something you've done that's not quite right, not quite how you'd want it to be, you're setting the tone for the rest of the group to enable them to do that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Another 
book you mentioned, which again, I found very useful and I do recommend to other communicators I have uh, over the years, is Adam Grant's book, Give and Take. Because, and you say the same thing about this, it helps us understand how we can connect employees more to the purpose of their work and how that can be incredibly motivating, but actually increase their productivity in a fairly, well, a very tangible way. Yes, no, he gives a lovely example in that book of of research that he's done in um, North American universities and colleges where he's gone in and met um, the fundraising team in, in, in those universities and colleges. So fundraising is a tough job basic cold calling, asking alumni for money so people don't like it. I think very high turnover of staff. And he talks in that book about going into various universities and colleges and dividing the fundraising team into two. And one half gets to meet the beneficiary of their work. So someone who's gone through that university or college as a result of the money they have raised. Just quite a short meeting, I think, five, ten minutes, but just a chance for the beneficiary to talk about the impact on his or her um, education and life. The other half do not get to meet the beneficiary. And he found that the fundraising amongst the half that got to meet the beneficiary went up by 171%, I think it is, compared with the control group, the half that didn't get to meet the beneficiary. And not just into the following week, even into the following month, it has an impact. And he just found they they were making more calls, obviously raising more money. And I think it's just such a simple piece of research but such an important message about how important it is for us to be connected and and, and with the people who are benefiting from what we do and having a sense that what I do is useful it makes a difference it's beneficial Mm. and in many ways such a simple thing to do doesn't have to cost much money Mm. but what a difference it makes and how we all kind of need that reminder yeah I am doing something useful I am having uh, a positive impact on on other people Mm. so something I think yeah, every organisation needs to think, how do we do more of this? Mm, mm. Yeah. I just love it because it really is a is a is an instruction, really, isn't it, to internal communicators to keep doing what you do, keep mm. sharing those wonderful case studies of how your organisation has had a, a positive impact in yes. the world, wherever yeah. that is, whatever, how large or small those stories are. It doesn't matter necessarily that the people you're communicating with weren't right at the centre of making that happen, but if they were a part of that, they're going to find that incredibly motivating yes so, they contribute in some way or, exactly. or it could be internal people that I've helped as well or yes. you know, even that as well it, it yes. maybe you know maybe I'm quite removed from the customer but actually how you have a positive impact on other people in the organization mm. how you help them do their job yeah mm. Mm. we were talking about improving our own minds and one of the things you mentioned towards the end of your book is mindfulness yes and this is really a, a, a quite a, a personal question in a way because I'm trying mm-hmm. to um, have those kind of mindful moments and I've also got uh, Sam Harris's app, oh, yeah. Waking Up, which, um, and of course before that, Headspace, which yes. was great as well. I just wonder if you could explain for listeners who maybe have heard of mindfulness but haven't actually got into the training yet, what is it and why is it a good thing for us to be practising? Um, yeah, mindfulness, I, guess, I think what mindfulness is in a way it um, it gives us the ability to um, observe our own thinking and gives us choice in a sense over what where we focus our, our thoughts and to me that's what kind of really makes the difference I think it's a hugely useful thing to be able to do because at any given moment so it gives you a choice about how do I respond in a situation in the organisation so it's that ability in a meeting suddenly somebody says something rude to you or confuse you whatever do I let my mind go off down that train of thought or do I say stop focus back on the meeting. I think it gives us that ability, that that choice. 
There are lots of studies from the world of neuroscience into mindfulness, um, although that said, quite a lot of them on quite a small base, mm. um, 20 here, 30 there. But um, a meta-analysis is being done at Oxford University, mm. looking at a lot of these studies. And I mean, on the whole, yeah, the case is really building for mindfulness um, in terms of um, our ability to stay calm under pressure. And again, in terms of the aging brain, so actually, again, being cognitively protective, um, all sorts of positive effects it, it, it has on us. And I think just about every neuroscience I work, scientist I work with probably practices mindfulness in some shape or form. So the case is, 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 is really building. Yeah, how you do it, I think, and, and it is, it's, it's, um, it's a challenge because ideally you want to just kind of build it in each day. Just And it might be, as you said, there, there are apps out there for people. I'm quite pragmatic about it in many ways. I think you just build it into your working day where, where you can. I say to people, even if just before you go into a meeting, just take a long, deep breath. Yes. And pause on the out-breath, because the out-breath is calming to the brain, activates what's called the parasympathetic system in our bodies. And pausing after an out-breath, just doing that, is actually very calming. So the smallest level is doing that. Um, but if you can, building up to sort of... There's research going about how many minutes do we need to do it each day. I think I saw some research suggesting they think about 10 minutes a day is, mm -hmm. is good if we can. But another one version I really like if people are busy is is um, just sort of kind of being in the moment. So little things like if you're in the shower, just be in the shower. Mm. Just focus on the sensations. Thoughts will come into your head, but let them go. Mm. Because um, I think far too many of us in our busy lives, we're constantly worrying about what I didn't get done yesterday. Oh, what I've got to get done tomorrow. And so we're constantly in a slightly frazzled state. And I think what mindfulness gives us is the ability just to be in the moment. Um, let go, observe those thoughts, notice they're going, but let them go and just be in the moment. So be in the shower or I know one really busy person, so she's very busy. So she just says she just eats her breakfast mindfully. So she has breakfast on her own, but really concentrates on the sensations, those kind of things. Or I've heard other people say they'll just you know, stare out the window, perhaps observe a cat or a bird or whatever, and just observe it, just focus on it. Because even that's giving the ability to get rid of other thoughts and just focus on the moment. So it's that ability to do that that I think is hugely important, especially given we work in such busy workplaces, we are all pretty stressed out, pretty frazzled a lot of the time. Mm. Um, and I think in this busy world, we've got to find ways of how do we take back a, back a bit of control for ourselves and, and calm our brains down. Mm. And mindfulness is a really good way of doing that. Mm. I really recommend it to people. It, it, it can feel a bit odd to start with. Mm. And you can, you can think to begin with, I can't do this. I can't stop my brain from thinking. And it isn't about stopping your brain from thinking. It's almost sort of labelling it as a thought, letting it go. Yeah. And there'll be another one that comes, labelling it as a thought and letting it go. And over time, it becomes mm. more natural. Yeah. I think, and I don't know what you think here, but you talk about work and the world of work and its incredible demands. But I also think mobile technology in particular, social technology, social platforms are perhaps potentially really to blame here because we've got a whole industry or several industries geared up primarily just to capture our attention. Mm. And they're incredibly good at yes. capturing our attention. Yes. We are the product. Yes. Our attention is what they are making money from. Yes. And 
to know mindfully that that's happening, to open your apps and look at your phone intentionally and not be sucked in and before you know it, two hours have gone by, mm. I think is really important. I mean, I don't know if you have any reflections on where, you, where we find ourselves um, with, with mobile and social technology, but I, more and more I'm wondering whether it's, it, it could potentially be quite dangerous to our brains. It, it's an interesting area, and I, th- and I think in terms of, of neuroscience, where the jury is still out because it's still such early days in terms of looking at the impact of, of, of mobiles and social media on, on our brains. And there are some, there's certainly studies that say that the more people who multitask more by having lots of apps open or whatever at the same time are actually worse at task switching. But then also there are studies that say people do a lot of gaming because they're so focused when they're gaming, actually that can that really develops their focus. So so the, you know, there's, there's conflicting messages out there. But I certainly agree with you. I think this whole bit about mobile phones and constantly being with us, there was a really interesting piece of research came out about a year ago on, on, on a big base, actually. And they had three groups of people all being given difficult cognitive tasks to do. But one group had been told, okay, you can have your mobile phone with you, but sound off, vibration off, and face down on the desk in front of you. The second group was told, do the same with your phone, but put it in your bag. The third group was told, do the same, but leave your phone in another room. They were then given different sets of difficult cognitive tasks to do. The group that did by far the best was the group that had left their phone in another room. Mm-hmm. The group that did second best was the group that put their phone in their bag. The group that did by far the worst was the group that had their phone visible in front of them on, on the desk. So I just think it really is a good example of how even these phones, when the sound is off, vibration is off, they're still kind of beaming a message at us of, look mm-hmm. at me, look at me. I might have something interesting for you. And that's a piece of research I've really learned from. So now if I really need to concentrate I put my phone in another room mm. because I know if it's there, it's kind of distracting me. So I think, yeah, again, just knowing this stuff and, and, and disciplining ourselves. And so for me, it's put the phone in another room so mm. I can't just look at it. It's, mm. it's really important. Mm. Uh, we had Bruce Daisley on oh, an yes. early episode yes. and uh, the author of, a, of the, the Joy of Work. Yes. And he's very clear about the power of turning things like notifications off. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's simple things like that. I also think potentially... Apple, for example, over time will probably do more to help us. Already they're telling us what our screen time is. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But I read somewhere just by turning your phone black and white, and apparently there's a setting right. where you can make it grayscale. Right. And immediately your phone is less attractive to right. you. And you're being more intentional then and not getting yeah. lost in it. You're going yeah. in, making a decision about what you're doing and coming out again because your eyes are not sort of caught by all the black, bright, shiny yes, lights. Attractive to it, yes. <laughs> Yeah, because there's yeah. an interesting point you make in your book, actually, which I thought, oh, that, that's there's a fine line to tread because our brains, although they resist and are a bit fearful about major change, we do like a little bit of novelty, don't absolutely. we? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Because one of the things that one of the struggles for our brains is we get bored. So novelty, our brains like 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 novelty. So absolutely, so novelty can be helpful in the workplace. Um, you know, a little bit of novelty, so because it's like kind of catches our eyes, and again goes back to our savannah brains because if you know we're scaling the horizon something slightly out of the ordinary something looks different on the horizon our eyes are attracted to it what is that is it food is it a tribe coming to attack me what is it so we are attracted to things that look a bit different so Mm. a bit of novelty is 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 yeah is, is a good thing because it 
gets gets our attention, gets our interest. Too much novelty and actually we're overwhelmed by change. Yes. But so it is, as you say, it's that fine balance yeah, between novelty yeah. and being overwhelmed by it. Yeah. To round things off, I wonder whether the sort of a good summation of all this might be for you to explain about the spaces framework because that brings a lot of this together, doesn't it? It does, yes. Because I, I use that as kind of, in a way, as a useful kind of um, mental or a planning template when, when we're going through change or, or anything really. So space is, um, is an acronym for six factors that if our brains have got these six factors, our brains are in a positive in a, in a reward state. If our brains haven't got them, our brains go into a negative or, or threat state or are distracted and can't focus. So the first one is, is self-esteem. So that's about, you know, if I, if I feel I'm respected, if I feel good about myself, if I feel I'm learning, that puts my brain into a good place. So that's a useful thing again, going through change or whatever it might be in the organisation. How can I show people they are respected, that they are learning, they are growing? So that's one of them. P is 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 for purpose, one we perhaps touched on with the Adam Grant work. But the sense that what I do is meaningful, makes a difference, um, is useful. And if people feel that, again, more to put their brains into positive place. A is for autonomy. Mm. And it's a bit about having a bit of control. Again, it's really important to us as human beings to feel I've got a bit of control here, a, a, a bit of influence, um, choice, those, those kinds are really important to the human brain. So again, I think in the organisation, if we're going through change or whatever it might be, I think the question always was, where can we give people a bit of choice, a bit of control here um, over what goes on it might be within the big change program overall there's not but can you just let go on certain things and give employees a chance to influence that bit it makes a big difference to us to feel i've got a bit of control i'm not a complete victim Mm. to what's going on here Mm. so c is for certainty that we that we touched on this bit again about our brains craving certainty craving information information is rewarding to the brain um that again our, our brains want that because we mentioned earlier, because they feel they've got that, they're better placed to to protect us. It's all about survival. E stands for equity, a sense of um, fair play in the organisation. And this one in particular becomes all the more important to us if we're going through change, that our need for a sense of equity, fair play goes up because our sense of if there's going to be change in this organisation, then I want to know I've got as good a chance as anybody else of getting the job I want or the resources I want or location or whatever it might be. So fair play, transparency is really important too. And S, last but not least, is social connection. So this this sense that um, do I belong? Do I fit in? And as I mentioned, I think it's an area we really underestimate in organisations. Mm. I think we get it in our personal lives that that relationships matter social connection matters but i do think somehow in organizations we somehow expect people to switch that need off and to walk into the workplace and somehow be terribly professional and relationships shouldn't matter in quite the same way but neuroscience shows they absolutely do we are deeply deeply social creatures again going back to savannah why because if i'm part of the tribe if i belong I'm much more likely to survive. I'm much more likely Mm -hmm. to make it. So, again, subconsciously we're checking out, do I fit in? Do I belong? Mm -hmm. Am I part of the tribe, so to speak? Um, But also um, because we are 
mammals and as as babies, we wouldn't make it through our first months, years of life without somebody taking an interest in us. So as babies, we are deeply aware, is somebody looking after me? Is someone looking out for me? Because if they are, I'm okay, I'm going to make it. If they're not, I'm, I'm not going to make it. So babies will scream and cry when they're tired and hungry, but also when they're separated from their caregiver. Right. And that carries on throughout life. Is somebody interested in me? Does someone mm-hmm. care about me? Does my marriage take an interest in my welfare? Mm-hmm. If they do, I'm okay. If I'm not, I'm not okay. Also, research shows that, that if we feel socially rejected, I'm not quite part of the team in some way, it has a big impact, puts us into a threat state, has a big impact on our ability to think, um, even our IQ in the short term. So there's nothing soft about relationships. They have a a huge impact on our ability to think and perform. And I also think in an organisation, especially we're going through change, a leader manager might say, well, there's not much I can do about certainty right now or whatever, but you can always do something about the quality of relationships you have with people. So I think that's one is, is a really important one and one we've underestimated. So that's, mm-hmm. the, that's that space. Is the thing. So I think it's a useful tool. Um, often in sessions, I get people to use it to plan ahead. What have you got coming up? Could be something really small, could be a conference call, could be organisational change on a macro scale. But how do you plan that thing, whatever it is, to make sure at least some of those six are coming out in a, in a reward place? Mm-hmm. Because if, if people have got none of the six, their brains are in a very negative place indeed. And, um, and it's very hard to work with somebody who feels they've got none of those six. So you need to try and move some of those into a reward state, into mm. a positive place. Mm. So it's just a very practical planning tool for yes. people. Yes, yes. Thank you for that. Uh, that is very, very helpful. I was just curious whether looking back over your career, and I, I, I know you spent a decade almost at Smythe Door with yes, Lambert. Yes, you're right. Yes. Uh, we had Mike yes. Klein on oh, yes, recently. Yeah, he was also well. there. Yes, yeah. Would you have done things differently? Can you think of things you would have done differently knowing what you know today about the brain? Or certainly, mm. the, have there been, sort of, were there tried and tested ways of doing things inside organisations that you'd seen and you think, well, now I know that's definitely not what should have been happening? It's a really interesting question. I think, I think looking back on it, what I would have is even more conviction about certain things. I think mm. I think at Smile Door Lambert we had a really good gut instinct about what people need to get through change. But I think I would have even more conviction about some of those things now. So things that we've we've touched on, things like um, the importance of people having a chance to reach their own insights rather than just being told about change. I would emphasize that even more now, I think, giving people a chance to look at information, reach their conc- own conclusion about why this is the right direction. So things like that. Things like that social connection that we've just we've 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 just talked about i think uh, it would give me even more conviction about how important it is for leaders to get out there connect with people so that's my reflection is that we were our, our gut instincts were absolutely right but i'd have even more conviction about them now and i think again that's why i think neuroscience is so useful to those of us who work in communications because it's not just a matter of opinion anymore mm. we've now got science that backs up a lot of this stuff and in a way you can kind of say to the leader we know this stuff about the brain we know the things that help it perform and focus we know the things that get in the way and as a leader you've now got a choice because you've now got that information yes you can now choose how you lead your people how you work with people but at least you can now make an informed decision 
conversation about that. Mm. Um, so I think in that sense, it makes a real difference. Mm. I think it's just that insight, isn't it? You make a point in the book that when change is announced, immediately, you know, there's a change to a process or whatever it is, some structural change, people immediately are going to think, oh, so what I was doing was wrong. Mm. I think that insight alone is so valuable mm. to a leader to because you can say off the bat, that's not to say what you were doing was wrong, but things have changed. Yes. And that was fantastic then. Yes. But going forward, yeah. this is how we've got to respond. And you're, and you're absolutely right. I think the whole thing about treating the past with respect is so important because I've, yeah, I've certainly seen leaders come in and kind of denigrate the past or the way we did, oh, that wasn't right. And, that, and also that's the message people try and pick up, oh, you're asking me to do something differently. So does that mean the way I've been doing it for the last five years was wrong or faulty or, or flawed in some way? But and, and again, if you're saying that to people, you immediately put their brains into a threat state yes. where they can't think straight. So it's really important to say, no, that, you know, to our knowledge, that was the best way to do it then. But maybe technology is moving on or whatever is moving on. So now there are, there, there, we need to move on too. But it's absolutely about treating the past with respect is so important because otherwise you've already put people on the back foot if you don't do mm. that. Mm, fascinating. Yeah. Are you okay to go to those quick oh. fire questions? Go for it, go for it. Yes, go for it. So I, I'm wondering whether you might have you might have answered this one already by talking about being a pilot, um, and you're speaking to someone who has a huge fear of flying. So we could spend the next hour talking about that. But anyway, what would most surprise people about Hillary Scarlett? Well, actually, adding to that, that Concorde was once told to get out of my way. <laughs> Wow! So I was flying. I, so I was flying because I used to fly. It was a west, west of west of London, and um, and I was flying doing an instrument racing, so in cloud. And suddenly we heard Concorde being told. For, I don't know why Concorde was flying around at our level. I guess something slightly wrong with it. it was told to get out of our way because we were maneuvering at five thousand feet. So it was like oh, Concorde's been told to get out of my way. <laughs> So I said with my instructor, so I was doing an instrument rating, and we were both like, wow, <laughs> there's a moment. That's definitely yes, a claim. No, get out of the way. It's <laughs> an amazing claim to fame. <laughs> so that's probably, oh, yes, that's, I mean, the talk gives me great pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because yeah. although. I absolutely hate flying. There's a big part of me that wants to get in a small plane mm. and watch what goes on and mm. be part of it. I'm hoping that demonstrates a growth mindset. <laughs> absolutely. Because <laughs> I think if I knew more, yes. then maybe I'd be less fearful, potentially. I don't know if that really yeah, works. You know, but... Yes. And well, actually, in a way, I wanted to learn to fly because I just didn't get how this great lump of metal got off the ground so no. quickly. You know, it's like 60 knots and off, and off you go in a little plane. I, that, that kind of fascinated me. So it was partly my, gosh, how's a plane do that, that, that got me into flying. And, and is it, I mean, I know people that do fly that they are literally bitten by the bug and they can't, it's their favourite place is to be above the clouds. Are you in that state now? Or? Yeah, I, I absolutely was. I remember the first time I, I flew in a small plane and, and the, the guy who took me up said, watch it, you know, this is, this is ad addictive and very expensive. And he was absolutely <laughs> right. I just loved it. It was quite a challenge for me learning to fly as well. Just, this, the, the idea that I could get this plane off the ground and get it safely back down on the ground was just... Uh, yeah. Lovely and 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 also it was incredibly useful, especially when you do your first solo flight. And I kind of thought, gosh, whatever I do in life, it's never going to be as scary as that first solo flight when you're up there and you've got to get it down. It's not like being in a car where you can just stop if you don't like it. Like <laughs> I've got to get this thing down. So so it's so it's a useful moment that I think of thinking, gosh, yeah, I'm on my own here. I've got to get this plane down. So it's always use back. Yeah, that was a scary moment, but yes, yeah, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's in perspective in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It comes yeah. back to what you said before about in a difficult moment. Thinking back to success yeah, yes, yeah. yes, give you a yes, little shot of yeah. dopamine to make yes, you feel good yes, about yes. the world if you could go back 
into time and give your, you say your 30-year-old self mm. or 35-year-old mm. self mm. some advice, what would you say to her? I think I think it's probably about having more confidence. I think also back perhaps looking to my sort of pre-30-something self. I think what, one of the things that's lovely about getting older is kind of in a way kind of knowing a bit more who you are. And I think back in my 20s, I'd be so much more concerned that people liked me. I'd have been horrified if a client hadn't wanted to work with me in some way. I think one of the lovely things about getting older is you kind of, in a way, know a bit more who you are and there's certain places where you fit and you work well and some you don't and, and other people better place to work there so I think it's that it's kind of relax and be more confident and um, don't try and please everybody necessarily I think that would be mm. my message to my pre-30 something mm. self yeah very very yeah. good advice I think there what would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you couldn't fail I think yeah I found this one this 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 one um in a way, in a way with the neuroscience, I am on a bit of a mission in many ways. And I did actually go to the Department for Business a few years ago and kind of said, come on, Department for Business. You are about science. You are about UK PLC. Get behind this neuroscience because it's all about um, performance. It's all about helping companies perform better. Also at a time when we're concerned about uh, mental well-being. It's also about how do we help people deal with, with, with stress and anxiety. So I guess there's still something back in my head would like to take on that. Say, it, just in a way, I guess employee engagement was was kind of taken. Yes. I think neuroscience should absolutely. You know, I do think every organisation, every leader, every manager, every employee should know about this stuff mm. because it's so helpful on a personal level, but also for the organisation overall. So I guess we're taking on that challenge of saying, right, everybody should know about this. I think it's so interesting hearing you say that because we had Nita Clark oh, yes, yes. on the podcast and exactly that. She went to, I think at that stage, it was actually Tony Blair's government. Right, yeah. um, and it was, uh, I think it was Mandelson actually, and said, look, come on, guys, we're yeah. in a slump, we're in an economic slump. Yeah. I hear this engagement thing is going to raise productivity. I think we need to sort yes. of um, find out about it. And that's how the whole Engage for Success yeah. uh, movement began. But this, for me, feels a similar thing. But it's saying, OK, we know engagement matters and raises productivity, but now we're going to really dig into the science behind how we can create that yes. engagement yes. Um, and put people in a positive frame of mind about their work. So I think it's absolutely go for it that, 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 would, that would be my thing yes. <laughs> so when you think of the world's best communicator alive or dead who comes to mind it's a hard one too I guess there are so many but this is um, I mean, it's going to be a classic recency effect I was listening to a TED talk yesterday of um, Sir Ken Robinson oh. um, and uh it was one, it was, I think he did it back in 2006 about education, and I just absolutely love it. It's He's just this lovely blend of, there's lots of humour in it, um, the timing is fantastic, but at the same time, he's got a really important message that he clearly feels passionate about, about education and creativity, and how we need to completely rethink education so that we don't squash creativity out of people. And um, yeah, I listened to it again yesterday, and I just... I just think the way he does it is so good, so clever, and I think so much to learn from that. So, so Ken Robinson in that TED talk, um, I said I think it's 2006, all about education. I just think it's fantastic. It's 
breathtakingly brilliant. Mm, mm. Um, we will put the link in the show notes. But it, what it, what it, I think from memory, what he talks about so much, and we've talked about it in this conversation, is the importance of enabling children to learn, mm. not necessarily pass exams yep. or know the answer. Yes. It's about giving them that growth mindset, yes, basically. Absolutely. I don't know if he uses that phrase, but that is what yes. he's talking about so yeah. much of the time. Yeah. And it's really about how the education system yeah. fails children yes. so often. Yes. Yeah, um, by yes. not giving them that. If you could have anything written on a billboard for everyone to see, what would you have written on it? Well, I've probably got several. several <laughs> one, one from a, I guess, from a neuroscience perspective, I would have that bit about keep on learning. It's really good for you that we can do it. We can learn well into old age, and not only can we learn, but it's really good for our brains. So that, so that would certainly be one. I might have a second one that this bit about. Um, that kindness is contagious. And I think, again, we can set our filters, we can make a decision each day. And there's lots of interesting research about random acts of kindness actually trigger other acts of kindness and are rewarding to the person who's performing the act of kindness, but also to the recipient and they're more likely to go and give other acts of kindness. So I think that would be one. And I guess I've got a third one too that actually is thanks to one of my yoga teachers. And she just has this lovely mantra. You go in there, stress, da, da, da. And she just says, in your head, just say... I am enough. And it's just such a lovely phrase when you're feeling a bit stressed. So maybe just be, you are enough. And you know, I think we beat ourselves up about so much about what we haven't done, what we need to do, and what we're not good at, whatever. So just that phrase, you are enough, is, mm. is just a lovely phrase to me. Mm. Thank you so much, Hilary, for pleasure. being on the podcast. Pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms podcast. For all the books and the other resources that Hilary and I mentioned, hop over to AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk. And on the podcast section of our website, you'll find the show notes. And while you're there, you might like to sign up for our monthly IC newsletter. It's called I saw this and thought of you. It'll give you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of internal comms. If you did enjoy this episode, I'd be really grateful if you could rate it on iTunes, because apparently I'm told this is the very best way of making the show more discoverable for other IC professionals out there who might find the content helpful. And to make sure you don't miss another episode, like the one coming up with Chuck Ghost, just hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast platform. Finally, listeners, I'd like to say a heartfelt thank you for listening to this show. We have reached over 20,000 downloads in more than 50 countries worldwide, which just astounds and delights me. So thank you so much for tuning in. And until we meet again, lovely listeners, remember, it's what's inside that counts. Listener.